with you, open to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Um, I have uh, what I'm going to call a standalone message for you. Um, this is a message that I preached a, uh, a little while ago in my previous church. And um, we're, we're kind of in a, a transition. We closed our Christmas series last Sunday. And next Sunday, um, I'm going to do something that I've never, ever done before as a pastor. Um, I'm going to use the next three Sundays to, um, to teach um, what we would call in the church uh, our membership class, and I'm going to do it in Sunday morning. Um, church, which is kind of odd, right? But you're so quick to respond that, yeah, that's odd. <laughs> vote of confidence already. Well, here's what I'm going to do. So here, this is kind of, this is a, a bit um, practical, but also a little selfish. At every church I've pastored, and this is the third church that I've pastored, I, I, obviously we teach membership classes, and when I become the pastor of those, I've encouraged everyone who's part of the church to go through the membership class with, with me, because I'm the new pastor, and you may learn something that you didn't know before, or at least you would get the perspective of me teaching what it means to be a church of the Nazarene and what it means to be a Nazarene. And only less than a handful have taken me up on that offer ever. And so um, I'm just going to force it upon you. I'm not going to give you the option. So, but here's what we're going to do. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to take what I normally do in my membership class, which I do over three sessions, and I'm going to put it into a sermon. A very, and so... Uh, pray for me this week that it all comes together because I've never done it this way before. Um, and then hopefully by the end of the three weeks, um, if, if you're part of our church, but you're not a member and you would like to become a member, there'll be an opportunity for you to do that. And I would like to tell you in advance, um, a, a church membership, there isn't a special parking place. You, you don't get a special pin. There are no special privileges uh, that come at all, it simply means that you believe God has brought you to this body of believers, number one. Number two, you are in alignment with what we believe as a church and what we believe uh, what, in regards to our articles of faith, but also the way that we believe we're supposed to live as Christians, and that you believe that God has a purpose and a role for you within our church. And so stay tuned. Next week we'll begin that We'll wrap up in three Sundays after that. So today is a standalone message, and, and it was really part of a, a three-part series, and I'll probably grab the other two parts at some point in time and share them with you as well. Um, and what I would like to do today is share a message um, that I think the, the topic of this message is important, um, and, and, it, and it's relevant for where we are in this very interesting time in our nation, in our world. Would you say that we are in a season in our nation and the world that, um, that is pretty extraordinary? Would you, would you agree? I mean, there, um, there are clear lines and sides drawn. Everything seems to be polarizing. Everything seems to be an argument. You're either on one side or the other. And so I think that this is a really good topic for us to discuss today. And so the topic that we're going to look at today is the topic of, of, of a broader concept or a, a, of this concept of having a worldview. Have you ever heard that before? A worldview? What is your worldview? And in this world that we live in, there are lots of different worldviews. Um, but today, I want to look particularly at the Christian worldview. And the reason why this is important is because for all of us who are Christ followers, we should, we should aspire to and we should, we should have a Christian worldview because of our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus. But before we get too far, I want to give us um, a simple working definition of worldview, because when I when I mentioned worldview, you might have been like, ah, I don't really, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it really truly entails. But, so let me give you kind of a simple working definition of what it means to have a worldview. Sometimes it it just simply means having a global perspective, 
how you see the world. George Barna, he defined worldview as this. He said that, that, that worldview, your worldview, our worldview, is the mental and spiritual lens that we view life and the world and all of the questions throughout it through. George Barna said that, that your worldview is the lens that you view everything, spiritual things, moral things, political things, the career path you, choice, you choose, the person that you're married to, everything that you, that you deliberate about, everything that you see, everything that you factor in your life, your worldview is the lens that you see all those things through. And what this means is that there are a lot of questions that each one of us must answer during our lives, and our worldview shapes it. I mean, you know this. There are tons of, we're bombarded with questions, choices, decisions that we make. And when we're faced with those, the reason why this is important is that our worldview should help us make those decisions and choices. It should affect all of those choices and decisions. See, our worldviews are affected by our life experiences. Did you know that your worldview can be affected based on the way you were raised, what you've been taught, and what you aspire to be? Um, marriage is a good example of how your worldview can affect it. If you have a Christ-centered Christian worldview of marriage, you would say that what God brings together, no man should separate. What God makes one, we shouldn't unone. That would be a Christian worldview of marriage. But if your past or if your life experiences have been uh, and your worldview on marriage has been shaped by those experiences and divorce is prevalent in your family, when you meet that person that you kind of feel like you're in love with and you want to get married and you get married to them, and the pastor might say at the, at the wedding ceremony, what God brings together today, let no one separate, but in the back of your brain, you're going, well, if it doesn't work out, you know, mama's got a divorce and daddy got a divorce and grandpa got a divorce, so divorce is okay, and so if it doesn't work out, I've always got a fallback plan. There's an escape clause in this shaped by your generational worldview. Does that make sense? Okay, so when we're shaping our worldview, there's always questions. Questions about purpose come up. Questions about spirituality come up. Questions about relationship. Like I said, marriage, children, money. Now the challenge with worldviews is that they are often more caught than they are taught. Meaning that as you go through life, and as you go through different experiences, different educational settings, different, different groups of people that you, that you hang out with or that you spend time with, that your worldview sometimes can get caught. You can just get caught up in a worldview rather than be taught a, your worldview. Often it's, it's because of our upbringing. But see, here's the challenge. The challenge with worldviews is that if, if, if we don't capture what's true and right, it can really lead us on a bad path. Sometimes our worldview is overly influenced by the social influence that's in the world today. Sometimes our worldview is shaped through crisis and turmoil. Do you guys, um, are there any, um, anyone in the room that, that would would just with a, a raised hand testify to being a binge watcher on streaming TV? I mean, anybody? Just me, Marquel, Bethany, yeah, just, a, just the young people. Come on, y'all, you guys have binge watched something here or there. Well, I do that. I don't do that all the time because I have lots of other stuff that kind of occupies my time and my brain. What I normally do is I will pick one thing to binge watch. I can't have like multiple things to binge watch because I, I just, I don't have the time or the energy. And so occasionally I'll do that, and, and I'll get on uh, the streaming services that we're part of, you know, Amazon Prime and 
Peacock and Hulu, whatever, and I'll, I'll search for um, something I, that I, that I want to watch, and I just want to watch it from beginning to end. Um, now, I will tell you, I'll testify to you today, I don't search out rom-coms. I, I don't like those. I mean, every now and again, one, but I don't, I don't search out like, um, like uh, um, you know, weird dramas, you know, about weird things. I just don't. You know what I search out for? I, I love law enforcement stuff. I love history. I love um, conspiracy theory kind of things sometimes. I, I like anything with military and those kind of things. And about a year ago, I, I found this one. I was kind of searching, and I found this, this, uh, this show that was, originally it was a Showtime uh, show. It was on around 2011, and it was on Hulu, and it's called Homeland. Has anybody ever seen Homeland? Yes? Who, who, who said yes? Kelly. So Homeland, um, let me, I, I kind of read the bio, and I thought, okay, I'll try it. And so what I'll normally do is watch a couple, and if I'm hooked, I'm hooked. Well, after the first episode, I was hooked on Homeland. And then I discovered it was like eight seasons, and I was like, wow, this is going to be a binge. But anyways, I tell you all that to say, here's the premise of this show. It's called Homeland. The premise is there was a Marine who was captured in Iraq. And he's captured in Iraq, and he's held captive for like eight or nine years. And during those eight or nine years of captivity, because he was captive by a Muslim leader, his worldview began to change. The lens that he viewed the world came from his captivity. It, his, his worldview from, from being a free Christian man was changed because of, a cap, of being captive in a Muslim nation. And it's fascinating the transformation. Now, I would tell you, uh, if you go home and you decide to binge watch Homeland, it's a bit of an adult show. And so just be prepared. Don't watch it with your kids. It's an adult show. But it's fascinating, this story, as you get to see this, this guy, Marcus Brody, go from being a Marine to being in captive and how it changes his worldview. And the reason why I share that with you is because I think it's important for all of us to, to understand that there's always a process for our worldview becoming our worldview. There's always a process for us to discover what we believe about the world, what we believe about faith, what we believe about spiritual things, what we believe about relationships. And all too often, in fact, for Marcus Brody in this show, his worldview was shaped out of peril. It was shaped out of a, uh, a desire to simply survive. Ha have you ever been in a season where you just felt like you were surviving? And because you were in survival mode, your view of everything changed? Right? And the reason your worldview is so important is because it has so much influence upon our daily lives. Here's another thing about worldviews and why it's so important to find the right worldview if you have children or grandchildren. What our children and grandchildren are exposed to you is nothing. Not even, you couldn't even, it, it's immeasurable compared to what you were exposed to when you grew up. What I was exposed to when I grew up. The things, the, the reason why in the United States right now School board meetings are one of the hottest places to be is because there are organizations all over this country that are trying to shape and teach worldviews to your kids and my kids that are in stark contrast to what I would say the Christian worldview is. So if you've never gone to a school board meeting, you should. You should know what your teachers are teaching your children. Chuck Colson, he says this about worldviews. He says, the sum total of our beliefs that direct our daily decisions and actions is your worldview. See, the sum total of our beliefs that direct your daily life, that is your worldview. And everyone has one. And there are hundreds of worldviews. There are political worldviews. There are social worldviews. There are moral worldviews. 
religious worldviews. Now we even have gender-specific worldviews, which is, is crazy. And here's the thing. There can even be conglomerations of worldviews. Did you know that you can pick and choose what you want to believe? You know, you could take a little bit of a Christian worldview, but you could combine it with a worldview of another faith. You could have a, a different picture or perspective of Jesus. And in fact, near the end of my message, we'll talk about how Jesus happens to find his way in several different religious worldviews. Did you know that? That Jesus, you can find Jesus in several different worldviews that have gotten lost along the way. So today we're going to focus on the, uh, the Christian worldview, and then we're going to look at two other worldviews to see the contrast and the argument that the Christian worldview, that I would argue that the Christian worldview is the most important worldview to have. Now, for many of you here today, you may agree with me uh, that the Christian worldview is the worldview we should, we should use and prioritize in our lives. You would agree to that. Uh, but there may be some that are like, yeah, I don't know. I'm still kind of searching out this God. I'm trying to kind of figure out what I believe about God. In fact, if that's you, that's awesome. You're in the absolute perfect place to discover what you believe about God. In fact, I believe as a pastor that one of our greatest responsibilities as the church is to give everyone space to figure out exactly what they believe about God. In fact, you don't have to believe everything we believe about God. In fact, over the next three weeks, when we talk about what it means to be a church of the Nazarene, what it means to be a Nazarene, you don't have to believe everything that we believe as, a Nazar as, as Nazarenes. We want to give you the space to try to figure out if what we believe as a church of the Nazarene lines up with who you are and what God wants to do in your life. So the Christian worldview I believe that is the lens that we should see the whole world. And you may agree with me. You may be right there with me. But if you're not, I'd like you to kind of come along this little journey we're going to take today, especially if you're searching for your own view of the world or if you are searching for the worldview that will help you discover your ultimate purpose in the world. I mean, so many of you, maybe young people, are trying to figure out what's next. What am I going to do when I get out of high school? What am I going to do in college? Who, am I going to get married? Who am I going to marry? Those kind of things. I just have this really firm belief that if God is in it, you, we might get lost along the way, but if God is in it, if God is the ultimate authority, you can't screw it up. But if you let the world dictate, if you let the world drive, you're going to get lost along the way. So what I would like today to do today, because I have a fairly firm opinion on my Christian worldview, and you probably do as well, what I would encourage you to do today and challenge you to do, could we, just for a few moments, could we hit the reset button on our worldview so that we can have kind of an open mind to all things, so that hopefully by having an open mind to all things, we will ultimately be brought back to where we started. So if you have a Christian worldview, I'm going to challenge you right now to just kind of hit reset on that. And if you have maybe, say, an agnostic or an atheistic worldview, I'd ask you to do the same thing. If you don't really have uh, a clear understanding of who God is and how he interacts and how he works in the world, hit the reset button on what you think about God. I don't know if you remember a little bit of my story and my testimony, but years ago, I thought God was just simple, this principle, disciplinarian up in the sky, and he was frustrated with me all the time and disappointed with me even more. And so if that's you today, I need you to hit the reset button on that perspective on God so that we could hopefully arrive at a better understanding of who he is and what he wants for each and every one of us. So we're going to hit the reset button so we can start again. But in regards to the Christian worldview, where does the concept come from of having a Christian worldview? Well, we find it in John chapter 17. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in John 17, verses 15 through 18. But I need to set this up for you. I need to give you a little bit of the backstory. Now, Jesus has been uh, in ministry for three years. 
It is the beginning of the Passion Week. Do you know what the Passion Week is? That's the week of Easter. That's the, that's the week that Jesus is arrested, tried, convicted, crucified, rises again, right? Rises again, right? Okay, so that's the Passion Week. At the beginning of the week, Jesus sits down for a meal with his disciples and his followers in this upper room of a home that they have uh, secured, and they have a meal. And after the meal, Jesus gives some instruction. He tries to tell them what's going to happen to them. They, they don't believe it. They kind of struggle with it. He serves them the Last Supper. He's trying to connect everything he's doing to what's going to happen next. And he's trying to prepare them. And then when the meal is over and when everything is done, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane so that Jesus can pray because the events of the Passion Weekend are going to start to be full throttle. Things are going to start happening. So Jesus and his 12, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes away to pray. He asks him to stay and, and keep watch because he's going to pray. And during this time, he prays and he asks God. He's talking to God about a number of different things. In fact, he's even asking God if there's any other way for his purpose for Jesus to be carried out. If there's any other way, Father, let it be, but not, your will, not my will be done, but your will. You guys familiar with this? Okay, everybody's familiar with it. So this is the moment that we discover the importance of having a worldview and number one, having a Christian worldview. Found in John chapter 17, verses 15 through 18. Now many of you, you might have NIV, New King James, King James, whatever. I'm going to read out of the message, which is a simple paraphrase of God's word. Eugene Peterson wrote this. It just kind of makes it a little bit easier to kind of grasp. And so I'm going to read this to you, and then we're going to break it down just briefly. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, and he's having a conversation with God. And he says, just as I didn't join the world's ways, meaning that Jesus came to earth and he was different than everyone else. He says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. He's not asking God, hey, protect them so greatly that, they don't have in, that they're not affected or influenced at all by the world. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, you know, I set aside my deity and became fully man so that I could show them how that the world would try to influence me and that others would try to influence me, but I would stand firm in who I am and who I'm supposed to be. Jesus is praying the same thing for you and I. He says, just as I didn't join the world's ways, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. Whether you like it or not, I'm telling you, there's an evil one in this world. And his name is Satan, and his deepest desire is to help you get lost and out of God's will and ways. That's his deepest desire. He says, let them be no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. In fact, Jesus was a world changer and he was unlike everything else that they'd ever seen. Jesus says, make them holy. Holy meaning set apart, consecrated, so committed, so connected to me with your truth. Not with just the experiences that we've had together, but with the truth that we find in your word and the experiences and, and the traditions that we've seen the way that God has interacted with us through human history. He says, your word is consecrating truth. He says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. Now this scripture, this, this scripture is where we discover the concept, have you ever heard that Christians are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world? This is where this teaching comes from. That we're supposed to be in the world, but we're not supposed to be shaped by the world. That we're supposed to be in the world, and we're, going, we're supposed to affect the world in Jesus' name. Right? So the Christian worldview is discovered here. And Jesus says, help them to recognize that even though they're in the world, they don't have to be of it because of your truth. Let them be so consecrated to your truth that they shape their worldview through the lens of who you are and what you have given us through human history. This is where we get the concept of the Christian worldview. So for the Christian, 
or the person pursuing, the person seeking out Christianity, this is where this concept comes from. But ultimately, how do you determine between the world's views and how do you know which worldview or what worldview to grab a hold of? So to discover this, we have to take a look at some of the other worldviews and stack them up against themselves. Do you know the irony of worldviews? Do you know that, 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 that whether you have a Christian worldview or other religion worldviews or other kind of worldviews, you know the irony? And, and as we take a look at a couple, you'll see this, that most other worldviews, non-Christian worldviews, you know what they do? They spend most of their time disavowing who God is. They don't believe in him, but they spend a lot of time telling us why we shouldn't believe in him. Isn't it funny that somebody that doesn't believe in something argues against something that we believe? I think it's funny. But here's the other thing about that. Atheists, agnostics who disavow God, God doesn't exist. Um, You ever been on a plane with an atheist or an agnostic? I mean, they're disavowing God on the ground. I mean, in the terminal, God is no, he doesn't exist. You get them at 35,000 feet and the plane starts shaking, seatbelt light comes on. Pilot's like, hey, hold on, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And they're like, oh, God, oh, God. On the ground, God doesn't exist. But when there's 35,000 feet of air in between them and the ground, God is very real. It's funny how very unspiritual people get very spiritual when the plane they are on starts to hit some turbulence. But I think that that's true even in life. Even very unspiritual people will get very spiritual when life gets turbulent. The rabid atheist in the terminal becomes the praying atheist in the air. And let's not kid ourselves. Even as Christians, there are times when we get complacent in our spirituality and then and, and we just kind of, we're skating along, everything's good, and we get a little bit complacent, and then something bad happens, and man, we are, oh God, oh God, oh God. Which leads us to the foundation of our topic today. And that is, if there is a God, what does God want from me? What does he desire from me? And the question that most impresses us to answer this is, if there is a God, What happens when I die? Did you know that that is the question that normally leads people into trying to figure this out? I mean, everybody wants to know what happens when they die. So in dealing with God, I think we have three ultimate options. First option is, if there is no God, that's atheism. Option two is that there is a God, but this God is, he's impersonal. He's kind of like a force or just an energy. It's an energy field that binds us all together, right? Use the force, Luke. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Didn't work on any of this. Or the third view is that God is personal. That God is so personal that God has a mind, that God thinks, that God plans that God loves, and that God even hates. That God has personal type attributes, meaning he is as personal as you and I. And the other worldview, the impersonal God, he isn't a thinking God, he isn't a planning God, he isn't even a loving God. And then the atheist and the agnostic, uh, they just have no belief in God at all, that God doesn't exist. Did you know that nearly 23% of all Americans, 23% of the people in our country, they claim to have no religious affiliation at all? None. That's what we call the nuns. They have no religious affiliation at all. Now, here's the thing about atheists and agnostics. They make up 8% of that 23%. So do you know what that means? That means that there's like... Number one, there's 77% of all Americans have some religious belief, have some spiritual belief. Some. And that like 85%, 
even if they're not necessarily real spiritual, they have a recognition of God. So let me ask you this. Why in the world is our country so screwed up if 85% of us believe that there is a God? Maybe it's because their worldview isn't a Christian worldview, and that's because it's not shaping their lives. I mean, it's good news that 77% of Americans have some religious affiliation. But in that, there's all kinds of religions. And there's offshoots of all kinds of religions. I mean, when, when you look at um, some denominations, like the Methodists or the Lutherans, there's several different branches. There's only one church of the Nazarene. And why, why is it that, that, um, that people, that if 77% of us have some kind of religious affiliation, why is it that, that our nation doesn't appear to be more faith-centered, more God-centered? Well, it's because a lot of people, even Christians, they've, they've kind of rejected or walked away from Orthodox Christianity. Why is that? Here's why I think that people, even though they have some belief in God, have walked away from Christianity or faith. It's because in our... I think we live in a, in a, in a, in a society, in a world that, that claims that you're supposed to be tolerant to everyone and everyone's beliefs. But you know what I've discovered? In the world's tolerance, the world has become very intolerant. You know, it, it, we get so caught up on what we believe about this or that or the other thing. And this partiality, it's because in our age of intolerance, we're ironically very intolerant of anything. In fact, do you know that some of you who are younger, you're intolerant of what your parents believe? You kind of look, you scoff at your parents when they talk to you about, well, what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say? What, is, what would God have for you? We're intolerant of generational beliefs. C.S. Lewis would call this chronological snobbery. You look down upon your parents because they just don't know as much as you do. They're not as enlightened as you are. Do you have any enlightened people in your family? If you don't have any enlightened people in your family, you're probably the enlightened one. Everyone else realizes it but you. So the majority of younger people, that's who kind of finds their way into that. Generation Z, millennials, college-agers, what do you want to call them? Or just simply people around their 30s and 40s. Generally, they're, um, th- this group of people, um, they, they want to have some sort of belief of, in a higher power. In, in fact, there's this, um, we, we kind of, you can kind of group this, God isn't the center, but they want to be, there's, faith has got to be a, component of something we call them the new age spiritualist have you ever heard of that concept the new age spiritualist it's a huge population of people they consider themselves very spiritual but they discover their own spirituality based on what they want to believe so let's take a closer look at some of these worldviews first let's look take a look at atheism atheism believes that it that it is it is false that god exists or that god's existence is and that God's existence is speculative. It's a speculative hypothesis at the most. And it's an extremely low order of probability that there is a God and that he exists. But there are some difficulties with atheism. First off, if God doesn't exist, where does all this stuff come from? I mean, if God doesn't exist, where did you come from? Where did I come from? I, 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 my mom bought this book. My sister, my, my mom got pregnant when I was seven years old with my sister, and um, she wanted me to understand where babies came from. So she bought this book called Where Did I Come From? Anybody ever see this book? Don't buy this book for your kids because it's, kind of it's a pretty graphic depiction. And it's like a cartoon sex ed book. It's weird. In fact, teenagers, don't Google it today, okay? I mean, really, you don't need to find the answer. I have a conversation with mom or dad about this, okay? But anyways, my mom bought this book, Where Did I Come From? And I discovered where, and when you look at the pages of this book, it would be very difficult for you to come to any conclusion other than the fact that something higher than us created this. It just didn't come from nothing. You know? So there's 
first, there's this struggle with atheism that if the universe is filled with stars and planets and moons and we're all here, where did it all come from? But they would say it came from biological evolution. But the problem with that, it takes time. Second, they believe in millions of years of time having occurred in the past, despite the fact that we measure time one way, before Christ and after his death. How do you reconcile? It took millions of years to get where we're at, but we measure time one way. And this is important because all atheists, they have to have an ex- a way of explaining how they come in, came into existence without God. And evolution is a requirement for that belief. You know what evolution is? Evolution simply is that um, we all came from pond scum. We all just drifted out of the swamp. Problem with that theory is we've got kind of a swamp right over here, and I have yet to see something crawl out of it that looks like any of us. I just don't think the beauty of who you are started out pond scum. But if you want to, you can call yourself pond scum. I mean, you can even call me pond scum if you want to. I just don't believe it's, rel- it, 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 it's, it's reality. And they believe that somehow, millions of years ago, this thing all started. And of course, atheists, they cannot take the word of God as plainly written because it claims to be a revelation from a God who never existed. But there's a problem. The, the laws of the universe and nature and sciences, they allude to something always coming from something else. Something always comes from something else. So was it the Big Bang? Is there a naturalistic explanation? Or could it have come from a logical explanation based on design and a designer, a creator who creates? See, everything comes from something. I thought there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was something. That's the atheist picture. And it just doesn't sit well with me. Another problem with the Big Bang is, is, it, is, is its lack of order. That out of chaos, we all have come to be. That all intelligent life just came out of chaos. See, without design or order, I just don't believe that things arrange themselves. Things, without some design, without some order, things just don't come together that way. You and I are just way too sophisticated of creatures to have just come from nothing. God had to have designed it that way. There are are some things that when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him about. I mean, God, really, why did you design facial hair and then this? I mean, why can I have to, why do I have to shave every day? If I don't shave this in a week, you'll be like, what? And then this. I mean, there are times when I'm like, gas, really, God? I mean, we eat and then it smells. I mean, it didn't smell like that coming in. Come on, God. Right? When we get to heaven, we're going to ask him all those kind of things. But they are designed. So if there's no God, and we're just some sort of cosmic accident, and everything just kind of made itself, and if nobody made us, then here's a big question. Is there really any real purpose for life? And with no purpose, is there really any meaning? And with no meaning, we are absent of things like love. And if there's no love, then what's the point? See, without love relationships, do you know that without love, any human connection is simply some sort of weird biological chemistry? If you're, because God designed us to love each other and he, got, he designed things in a particular way. In fact, all of you came, every single one of you, there's not one of us in this room that didn't come from a, get this, believe it or not, man and a woman. Not one of us. And it hadn't happened yet, and I don't think it's gonna. And if without God, without love, without that, then it's just some sort of weird biological chemistry that brings us together. And do you know what happens with an absence of love? Biological chemistry, a like or a dislike can change, and you can wander right out of that relationship as quick as you got into it. 
And see, that's the problem. Because there's this concept that our biology adjusts and changes. And as soon as I fell into love, I can fall out of it. Here's another issue that, that atheists struggle with. Morality. Because, because they just can't grasp the concept that one person can establish the morality or the moral authority for every person. For everyone. See, morality becomes what you make or what society makes of it in the atheistic perspective. So if society says this is, a morally, this is morally right, then it must be morally right. Can you imagine if we as a nation voted on moral things? What in the world? Where in the world would we be? See, in the atheistic perspective, that worldview, morality is reduced to what we can collectively agree upon. And that's a scary thing. And if there's no God, morality is just a fabrication. It's a big game of pretend. We made up so, we couldn't, so that we wouldn't tear each other apart. And with that, it's also manipulated by what you can get away with. Sean knows this because he sits on the freeway every day and watches us drive by seeing what we can get away with. See, that's the difficulty in a godless universe. There's no meaning. There's no value. There's no purpose. There's no love. There's no morality. And with all that, there's, there's very little incentive to sacrifice for the greater good because there's no greater good. And if there's no greater good, then who cares? But the good news is the human soul generally rejects those notions because our souls desire meaning. They desire value and purpose and we desire to be loved and to love, right? See, we, we believe there is a real right and a wrong. We do believe in absolute moral law, and there is a moral lawgiver, and his name is God. We believe there is someone who says that this is right and that is wrong, and it makes a lot more sense than there's no evidence of that at all. Let me give you a simple example of the evidence of a creator, a designer, a builder. We all live in a house. Somebody built that house. I guarantee you today, please don't take me up on this unless you have a project that your wife has been hounding you about. Go home to your house. If you went home to your house right now, knowing that it was built by a builder and you started tearing apart the floorboards, you went into the basement, you, you started breaking up the foundation, guess what you're not going to find in that house? The builder. He's not still there. The creator is not still there. He built it and he moved on to something else to build. It was built by a builder. But the builder doesn't remain. C.S. Lewis, he presented the argument that you wouldn't expect the builder of the house to be in the walls of the floor of the house. The builder is outside of what he built. And the atheist, the agnostic would say, that there's no evidence in the world for God. There's no evidence in the universe for that God exists. Well, I would argue that the existence of the universe is evidence enough that God exists. God is, would be outside of creation, not part of what he created. In fact, the fact that there is a building right here is enough evidence that someone built it. And the evidence that God created is evidence in each and every one of us today. The, the universe and everything in it is evidence of a divine creator made by design. Now, the second option is that God is like an impersonal energy force. He's just an energy. God is universal. He's, he is the universe uh, but he doesn't have personal attributes. He's not relational, relational. He's impersonal. This is where you find the New Age spiritualist. The New Age spiritualist looks at all perspectives of God and takes and sifts and sorts out what they like and what suits them best, and then that becomes their God. The New Age spiritualist likes the idea that God is everywhere and in everything, and in that, in that concept, we are like God, and, and so therefore we get to decide uh, what's better for us because we kind of almost put ourselves as a, the, 
on the same level or authority as God. But there are all kinds of difficulties with that too, with that, the new age spiritualist worldview. Part of it is this. If God is in everything and there's still evil in the world, then does that make God evil as well? And with that, we find our way to the third option. And the third option is that we do have a God who is creator of everything. He created you. And not only is he a creator, but he is relationally personal to you and I. And he's available to everyone he created. Meaning we're, we're able to be in relationship with a God so personally that we, we get to see him. We get to feel him. We get to reflect his character. We get to reflect his nature and his heart. This belief would be that we, we have a relationally personal God who infuses me with purpose and the ability to know right from wrong, his right and wrong, not the right and wrong I would choose to define. And this God, he gave me a conscience he gave me a soul. He gave me a spirit that leads me toward the right things and away from the wrong things. Which means that God doesn't like some things and that God does like other things. And for most of us, that is the God that makes the most sense. God designed us. And God has a coherent mind. And God designed us as moral creatures. Because God is moral. And we are communicated and expressive creatures because God is expressive and he communicates. Okay. Lots of information that we just kind of thrown at you. And you might even be sitting here going, okay, pastor, I'm going to give you that God is relationally personal. God. He's a relationally personal God. But why Christianity? Aren't there other religions? Aren't there other religions that even believe in God too? Yeah, there are. In fact, there's a, hundreds of them. There's really 10 major. There's around 10 that are kind of major, contemporary. And when you name them, they're Christianity, Catholicism, Islam, Judaism, Jehovah's Witness, Seventh-day Adventist, Mormonism, there are others, but these are the ones that we most think of. Now, here's the interesting thing about every one of those. Every one of those does look at God as relationally personal. Every one of those are based on the Bible. That's kind of where they started. In fact, the two that I could break down the most, Islam and Mormonism, I'm not going near Mormonism today. But in Islam, did you know that Islam is it's, it's a copycat religion to Christianity? It, it's just a copycat. See, it, it's Christianity flipped on its head. Then it goes militant. And it dismisses most of the New Testament, saying that it, it had been corrupted. And, and it, it turns militant. And then we throw a sword and some blood in there. And that's where we get Islam. Did you know this about Islam? Here's kind of just in a nutshell. This is what the nation of Islam believes, the religion. They believe that the archangel Gabriel allegedly appeared to Muhammad around the turn of the 7th century and said that the New Testament was wrong and it was corrupted and that, that they needed a new, a new New Testament, which they call the Quran. Then over 26 years, Muhammad claims to have received angelic visions and angelic messages that became the Quran. Did you know that in Islam, Jesus is the second highest prophet? So he's in there. But see, here's the thing. Islam is just a twisting of Christianity with a really bloody sword added to it. Islam is just one example of how different religions see God as personal, and they started with the Bible, yet they got confused along the way. Now, today is not a debate about these religions. If you want to debate Mormonism and Christianity and Catholicism, 
I'll meet you for lunch and we'll have a good time doing that. That's not what today is all about. Today is a conversation about Christianity and why I believe it is the worldview we should all pursue, the worldview that we should all live by and give the greatest weight of authority to. But regrettably, so many dismiss the worldview of Christianity because they never really give it a fair shake. I mean, it just seems hard. It seems old. It doesn't feel progressive enough. <laughs> Don't you hate that word? It seems intolerant. Unfortunately, you know what happens? People hear a bunch of propaganda about Christianity, about the things that they hear, but they never really hear the reality of the gospel, which is viable and and a very plausible worldview. Because Christianity explains the universe and where it came from. It explains how we got here. The question of life is explained, morality, the meaning of life, what love is. But so many people won't dig deep enough because along the way, you know what happens? They find something. They find conviction. And people who want to define their own worldview, they don't like conviction. They want to be able to just determine what's right or wrong in their world. They want to be the one that determines the intellectual foundation for saying what is right and wrong. But I believe that Christianity is the most intellectual worldview that is available to us. Why? Not even because of creation and Is it a literal seven days or did it? I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. You know why I think Christianity is the worldview that we should all aspire to? That the debate should be over? You know why? Jesus. It's it's as as simple as Jesus. Check this out. If, if, If you forget everything that we've talked about so far, this is when you need to lean in and pay attention. It's Jesus. Here's why. Did you know that 2,000 some odd years ago, a dirt poor Jewish carpenter was born in an obscure city in Israel? And then at 30 years old, he began a three-year ministry. And in three years, without occupying a public office, never elected to any official, wasn't a Pharisee, didn't have any authority or any position, without being a king or a political leader, without having any money, without leading the military, and without writing anything down, he would split time in two, B.C. and A.D. Unbelievable. He would lead a following of people that would become arguably the largest religion in the world. All started from one guy, dirt poor Jewish carpenter. Remember the guy we celebrated, born in a manger? all started from this guy. Who was this Jesus? How was it possible that in three years, where he didn't travel more than a couple hundred miles from where he was born, from his hometown, how could he cause such a movement that literally changed the world? Along with that, we have historical manuscripts and thousands of historical manuscripts which are historically viable documents that claim that Jesus actually existed and that he did exactly what we find in the words in this book. Not only that, we've got eyewitnesses. We've got 12 guys. We've got a bunch of other people who saw the guy live, who heard the guy teach, saw the guy walk on water, saw the guy heal the blind man, saw the guy bring Lazarus from the tomb, saw a guy get hung on a cross and walk out of the tomb three days later. They saw him ascend into heaven and give them direction. We have eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. Not only did these eyewitnesses say, you know what, I knew him. I ate with him. I served with him. I saw him die. I saw him raise again. Do you know those same men died for that belief? All 12 of them. 
They believed in Jesus so much that they would die proving it to the world. No other religious figure has that backstory. No other religious leader has that biography. And then, did you know something? This is kind of weird. This might be elementary to you, but I think it's kind of cool. Did you know that it's January 16th, 2022? In China? It's January 16th, 2022 in Russia. Right now. In Japan. In Indonesia. In France. Everywhere it's the same date. Why? Because Jesus showed up 2,000 some odd years ago and split time in half. That's a pretty viable fact to base having a Christian worldview on, wouldn't you think? And yeah, it started out with this Jewish carpenter born in an obscure city in Galilee, and it makes no sense unless it were true. I mean, you just can't make this up. And then there's the Bible. I mean, if, if you didn't if you couldn't take Jesus and the eyewitnesses and the split in time, we have this book. And, and it's not really a book. Did you know that this book was written over, over three different continents, this book was written? It took 1,500 years to come into the shape that it is now. It was written in three different languages, 40 different authors. And do you know what? It has one consistent theme all the way through. How in the world does that happen? I guarantee you, you could find 40 authors in this world right now, put them together and say, hey, you guys separate yourself over a number of years and a number of continents and, oh yeah, maybe three languages, and I want you to write a story, and it needs to have the same conclusion. It needs to be, it needs, it needs to be concise. It wouldn't happen. How does this happen unless it were true? How does it happen that all that comes together in one unifying central message and that unifying central message is this, that we're all disconnected from God, we've all sinned, and we can't get right on our own. And in the New Testament, we find this guy, Jesus, who is God stepping out of heaven as the God-man to say, hey, I'm setting things right. I'm dying in your place for your sins, and through faith in me, you can have eternal life. I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. I believe he's the Savior of the world. And it might sound ludicrous to some, but it's not just ludicrous. It's logical. And it's a logical foundation for everything that we believe. And even with all that, even with that foundation of God's word, knowing that a man named Jesus actually lived, we can, we can trace it all back to him. Even with all that, even with all the head knowledge that I can have, because guess what? There was a time in my life, and maybe a time in your life, when that head knowledge meant nothing. But then something happened. Something happened. I had an experience. I had what we would call an experiential con conversion. It's a hard word to say. Because for me, on April 12, 2000, in the back of an Aramark laundry truck, about 6.15 in the morning, I had a conversation with God, who at that point in my life I believed was just an evil disciplinarian principle in the sky, not happy with me, and I said, okay, God, if you're real, you've got to show up right here, right now. You've got one opportunity. And Jesus showed up. The back of an Aramark laundry truck lifted the burden of sin and the weight of the world off of me physically. And because of that experience, all that knowledge came into harmony with who he is. And from that day forward, my worldview changed. My faith in Jesus became my motivation for everything that I did.
motivated me to be a better husband, better father, better worker. Everything that I was and would become would now be filtered through the lens of, you could call it a Christian worldview, but I would just say simply it was Christ in me. Check this out, and I'm going to wrap up. This is the greatest argument that the Christian worldview is, well, maybe not, because you might think I stink at this, but in my mind, the greatest argument that Jesus is exactly who he says he is and that God is not who I thought he was and that the Christian worldview is the worldview that we should all aspire to, I'm a pastor. That's pretty much enough. I mean, if you knew me before, you'd be like, how in the world does that happen? I mean, that, that, I see that it was a logical progression. There are a lot of people in my life that said that is illogical. If, and the greatest evidence that God is who he says he is and that your worldview should be shaped by him is the presence of God in your lives for all of these years. And, our, and our, our responsibility, our charge, is to take that and help others discover who God is. So that maybe 73% of all Americans who have some religious connection find their way home. Find their way to the God who created them, who designed them, who didn't just kind of miss on some and get it right on others. Because that is hope for everyone. So I don't know where you're at today or where you came from this morning, but I would just challenge you and encourage you especially the young people in the room especially all of you that are under the well you're younger than me how about that you can do the math later and and take a look at the world that you live in and see if the lenses that you've been looking and believe me young people you guys look at it through multiple lenses look at the world through the lenses that you've been looking at and see if you can find some real sense to it. And if you see chaos and confusion, if you see disorder and discouragement and pain and loss and suffering, then I would say to you, you're looking through the wrong lens. And you need to start looking at life through the lens of God who is real, who created you, and he made you just the way you are. And you don't need to change it. You need to embrace it. And then trust that he will help you discover purpose for your life. And it's hopeful purpose. It's good. It's better than anything you could ever figure out on your own. And you might be sitting here and you're like way, way down that life journey. And you're like knocking on heaven's door and You've struggled having complete faith and trust in him. Let the evidence of who he is and who he has been in your life carry you home. Let it sustain you each and every day as God is faithful and he will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just an opportunity to kind of take a slice out of what we do every Sunday morning and carve out a piece of time and talk about a, a subject that we don't always talk about which is how we see you and how we see the world and how the world sees you and the determinations and the, the way that the world goes based on their perspective of you or their lack of perspective of who you are and so may God you help us each and every one of us sort out all those things that would bombard it down just like when Jesus was in the garden, this concept of you're in the world, but don't be of the world. 
don't be transformed by the world. Be transformed by Christ who renews our mind, who gives us wisdom and direction. For all those that are struggling with who they are, how they fit in this world, or who you are, and how you interact with this world, may today be just the beginning of, of, of a deep investigation to where they could spend some real time working out what they believe about you. And may God, that inward pull that you place in every single one of us, would you draw them to the truth of who you are and who you are as the God who created them, the God who loves them, who wants the very best for them and has a plan and a purpose that is going to be good for them. They would just simply recognize you and follow you. For all of us who seem to get lost along the way, help us to remember and recognize that God, you've always been there, you've always been faithful, and that isn't going to change now. And maybe, just maybe, if churches like ours, just this small group of people, would say, my worldview is going to be shaped by God the Father, and if one after one we did that and we lived it boldly in our daily lives, maybe it, it will... I don't think it would just stem the tide of what's happening in our world. I think it would overwhelm it. I think you want to transform our nation and our world in Jesus' name, but you want to do it through us. Your plan is that your church would be a reflection and the mouthpiece of God for the world. Help us be faithful to that. Go with us today, Lord, and we give you the, the honor and the glory for what you're going to do in each and every one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.